and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is John Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So um, I'm going to skip all the other introductory stuff. Um, I am once again sitting in my car, smoking a cigar. It's Friday afternoon. I just finished a draft of a very long G-file. The first part is, I will concede, utterly frivolous. Um, It was inspired by a tweet from my friend Scott Lincecum, who wanted to... uh, uh, he asked. He did a Twitter poll about what the, what animal, what creatures from the animal kingdom have the best PR, and the point he was trying to make was that um, for some reason he hates blue jays and he thinks that they have um, an undeserved good reputation, but I kind of took it and ran with it um, to. Uh, to tell some hard truths about some animals out there, including panda bears. And um, I will admit I did it because I am sort of preemptively exhausted with a lot of the stuff going around these days that I'm told constantly I have to be talking about. Um, I don't think I've tweeted more than a couple pictures of my dogs in the last few days without someone telling me, oh, that's... uh, you just hiding from having to talk about Michael Flynn. And I find the whole thing sort of tedious. My short take on Michael Flynn, uh, just in case people think I'm still dodging the issue, is um, I think the whole thing's a mess. Um, I am perfectly happy to, I mean, happy is the wrong word, I am perfectly willing to concede the FBI clearly screwed some stuff up and did some bad things, and it should cost some careers. I think the people who screwed stuff up, their careers have already taken whatever damage they're going to take. And it's probably, unfortunately, not as much as it should because in this stupid polarized time that we're in, um, if you are an enemy of the other side, your side turns you into a hero or a martyr or whatever. So McCabe and Strzok and all these people will be feted and dined and celebrated in all the right places. And similarly... um, Michael Flynn is being celebrated and feted. And, you know, I saw somewhere, I don't know if this was true, but somebody apparently said that the campaign wants him back because he's their Nelson Mandela, um, which is just so stupid. I mean, the whole thing is so stupid. Um, You can hold simultaneously in your head that procedurally and substantively even uh, the FBI screwed up on this stuff. They went way overboard or way ahead of their skis on the Russian collusion thing. And um, I don't quite get the simultaneous arguments from some of my friends that Flynn was their target simultaneously because he was a savvy inside operator who would know how to flip on others. And he was this political ingenue uh, who was too naive to realize what was happening to him. But whatever the truth is of Flynn, I find him a kind of a mysterious character. I don't think he's a particular hero. Um, you know, you can, just as you can frame a criminal um, unjustly, um, you can 
try to put the screws to some to a bad actor um, unfairly um, or based upon a wrong theory of a crime um, without turning that person into some sort of, of hero. I mean, as I understand it, and I'm open to correction on this because I have never paid that much attention. I went to make sure that there wasn't some something I had written over the years to contraindicate this. And as I searched for on Nexus Lexus for the stuff I'd written about Flynn, I didn't read everything I wrote. There were some columns I didn't even remember writing. But I never really wrote about him much. And I usually just wrote about him in the context of other things going on. Um, but as I understand it, you know, this was a guy who was not disclosing uh, his relationship with Turks for a, what sounds like a pretty nefarious scheme to forcibly extract like some sort of crazy black op, uh, this weird dissident mullah guy, I don't know if he's a mullah, but he's sort of a cleric guy named Gullum, Gullah, Gulan, that's what it is, um, and extradited him back to Turkey because um, the Erdogan government there hates him and thinks that he's responsible for all sorts of terrible things. I don't think... I don't know that Gulan is, uh, but he might have had something to do with that coup, attempted coup, I should say. So he may be a bad guy, too. I don't know. But uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that a foreign policy advisor on a campaign who is in the lane to become a national security advisor should probably disclose to his own people. Um, and uh, I didn't like the weird turn that, that Flynn took um, you know, during the Obama years, but I also didn't like the Obama administration. So look, I, it just, this is a microcosm of a microcosm of a general position that I have that um, in a lot of these dramas, all of the actors can be bad actors and we don't have to assign white hats and black, hat, black hats to everybody. But what I kind of just instinctively reject is this idea that um, I have to sort of, you know, that it is now the party line that he is this, you know, sainted martyr figure um, um, when I just don't see it, you know. And I'm, again, I'm open to correction on all that. Uh, the second half of the G-File is a little weirder and a little, a little more depressing. Um, I wrote about, um, you know, this thing, which I've talked about on the podcast before, I've written in the G-File before, um, this thing about social capital, which I think is so important. Um, so what I wrote about in the G file, uh, the second half of the G file is th this weird meditation about social capital. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of been obsessed over the years with different forms of capital. Um, the kind of capital that most people, and I don't mean like capital cities, uh, the kind of capital that most people are familiar with intuitively understand is money, right? You know, financial capital. If you have a billion dollars in the bank sitting they're collecting interest. You have a lot of financial capital that you can spend on a lot of things. If you have a lot of financial capital, you are able to uh, weather financial shocks to the economy much better than somebody who isn't. And um, that's just sort of common sense and not particularly interesting. But there are these other forms of capital. <coughs> they go by different kind of names, like uh, there's social capital, which I'll talk about in a second. There's um, intellectual capital, just basically, if you're extremely smart, um, I should say cognitive capitals, if you're extremely smart. Intellectual capital is a little different. It's about, um, you know, it can, in economics, it can be, 
if you hold a lot of patents, you have intellectual property that are incredibly valuable. Um, and you can use those essentially as collateral. You can use them as essentially financial instruments. Um, there's this stuff, uh, uh, you know, cognitive capital is obviously just if you're really, really smart. Somebody who has a lot of cognitive capital um, is going to be able to navigate through um, a complicated system better than somebody who doesn't. And you can subdivide cognitive capital into educational or training capital and and raw native intelligence. I don't really care. You know, one way to think about this is if you took a, you know, a billionaire who has no survival skills whatsoever and you put him on an island with a, you know, Navy SEAL who's got survival skills out the yin-yang, all of a sudden the billionaire, because he doesn't have access to the institutions of a modern society, is in effect, in effect the poor guy in, of the two. And the guy who knows how to find water, hunt animals, build shelter, start a fire, is all of a sudden incredibly rich. You know, wealth, the most obvious forms of wealth have to do with money, but it doesn't take much effort to understand that wealth comes in a lot of different forms. And if you have, um, you know, a certain set of skills, uh, that's a kind of wealth too. Now, my father-in-law, um, who died a couple years ago, uh, I've written about this before, but he, um, uh, he had this standard response whenever my wife's brothers and sisters or my wife would talk about some fancy career they wanted um, or some clever business idea. His standard response to that kind of stuff was to say, yeah, but can you eat it? <laughs> and what Paul or Vlad um, meant by that is that, you know, there are certain economic activities that are so essential to human need that it kind of doesn't matter what the larger economic circumstances are. People got to eat. Uh, you know, people need shelter. Um, people need clothes. They don't necessarily need um, a second iPod or, um, you know, to learn how to make very clever cheese in some ma macrobiotic you know, cooking course. Uh, those kinds of things are the stuff that you can make money from, but they're very dependent on discretionary income. And my father-in-law, whose village was, you know, invaded by both Nazis and communists during the Second World War, knew a lot about deprivation. And he always thought sort of in, a, in the sort of keep it simple stupid that in business you should stick to stuff that is essentially, you know, recession or cataclysm proof. And there's a certain amount of wisdom in that. There's a, there's a slightly different version of that that Jews and Asians practice, which I think is kind of fascinating um, when you think about it. You hear so much stuff about how education will make you rich and how education will make you prosperous and how not just you, but whole societies, that we need to invest in education to become more prosperous. And obviously there's truth to that. And I understand what people mean by that, but they often overlook um, a kind of fundamental insight, which is that, you know, let's put it this way. Most Jewish parents who forced their kids to become doctors, um, they didn't do it to make sure they would be rich. They made sure they made them do it so they would make sure they wouldn't be poor. Education, particularly among affluent people, is less about guaranteeing 
greater wealth and more about hedging risk about poverty. Um, that's why, like, it's one of these weird things that you, that, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with um, is the, you know, and, and Joseph Schumpeter writes a lot about this, is how, you know, you have these captains, that there's this familiar cycle in American history, and I think um, probably it's true in other countries, but less so because uh, other countries have more of an aristocratic superstructure to them. But in America, you have, it's a story that goes over and over again, where you have these super rich people who basically created all their wealth, all, all of their wealth themselves, you know, these so-called robber barons, which is a horrible anti-historical misnomer that comes from the 1930s and is, is garbage. But, um, you know, these captains of industry, the Gettys, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Fords, all these people. And, you know, with some exceptions to the rule, what happens is these families build these dynasties, they get super rich, and then the, the guy who's a self-made man um, with actually very little formal education ends up educating his kids to a fairly well. And so the kids become essentially lawyers or professionals and that kind of thing. And sometimes they take over the family business. Sometimes they go out on their own. But then like the grandkids become poets and artists and that kind of thing. And Schumpeter talks about this as um, one of the reasons why he thought capitalism was doomed was that um, there was this natural tendency for um, these dynasties to sort of do away with themselves and create essentially the seeds of their own destruction and the system that made them rich in the first place because the kids who grow up to be intellectuals and academics and writers and lawyers and social workers and you know, what was generally called the new class, um, what they do is they turn their um, skills against the very system that um, made us rich in the first place. This gets to, uh, you know, Schumpeter, as I write in my book, he borrows some of this from Nietzsche, who made this argument about um, resentment, which is basically the French spelling of resentment, and I'm not going to do it again, but I'm not going to try to pronounce it again, but the, 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 the resentment that Nietzsche talks about that Schumpeter is influenced by is not just simply like resentment that we use in everyday language. It's this process by which people use the, um, the skills and powers and resources at hand to get more skills and power and resources, essentially. And so in Nietzsche's telling, which I'm not subscribing to, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but in Nietzsche's telling, before Christianity, the greatest virtues were courage and, um, you know, uh, moral, you know, uh, independence. And you, it was sort of, as, as Nietzsche would put it, you made right by the sword. You made your own, you know, the, the, the knight, the knightly class, as he put it in his, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the writing that this is in. Anyway, it'll come to me. Um, genealogy of Morals. Um, as Nietzsche put it, you know, the knightly classes made their own, mar made their own morality. They decided when to sacrifice one principle for another, um, in their pursuit of power and glory, um, and pride. That was another one of the old virtues. And then Christianity comes along, along, um, in the form of what Nietzsche describes as a priestly class. The priestly class or caste, um, what do they do? They start turning virtues into vices. 
and they start saying that things like pride and strength and glory um, are essentially um, vices now, right? In a way that, like, and instead people should be meek and turn the other cheek and humble and not prideful. And, uh, and so Schumpeter sees this process in the way that, you know, the, the intellectuals that capitalism make possible, um, they in turn pick up the arguments and the tools to denounce capitalism and to denounce the existing system in part sort of like backseat drivers because what they want to replace it with is a system that is run by intellectuals or technocrats or progressives or social engineers or whatever you want to call it. And, um... I think that's a real serious problem. I think that Schumpeter was wrong to a certain extent insofar as saying it was a fatal problem because one of the great things about capitalism is that it has this immense capacity for recreation and, and um, uh, reinvention and innovation. And so even though all of these, almost all of the famous quote-unquote robber baron families of the late 19th and early 20th century who were richer than any human beings that ever has been seen before, with the exception of maybe, I don't know, the emperor of Persia or something, um, within three generations, uh, they've lost all their money. Their family, you know, there are a couple of places where their trust still existed, but um, they were basically bled out of their creative vigor, but capitalism wasn't. Other innovators um, moved in and took down a lot of these monopolies and all the rest. Anyway, it's a, it's a long discursion to simply say that Another form of capital is intellectual or educational capital. And, um, and I think it's a real thing and all that. But the kind of, and then there's also intangible capital, which I'm truly fascinated by. Um, there's really interesting, you know, economic studies that argue that nearly all of the wealth in the richest countries in the world is what they call intangible. And intangible includes things like intellectual property and, you know, scientific expertise and all of that kind of stuff, stuff that's sort of baked into our economy in ways that are largely invisible to us. One of my favorite stats, which I'm going to butter the exact numbers on, is that uh, simply by virtue of crossing the border from Mexico into the United States, an untrained, unskilled, uneducated laborer, physical laborer, becomes something like four to six times more productive simply by working in the United States because of all of the, the tools and machinery and processes that we have here that extract more productivity and more value out of all labor than in other countries um, or in countries like, for instance, Mexico. I'm sure that, that the gap is closed somewhat since I first saw that. It was in a book by um, Arnold Kling and my friend Nick Schultz. But anyway, the point still remains. If you took a illiterate laborer from a thousand years ago and you put him in the United States today, he would be able to generate more wealth with the same labor simply by um, working here. And so intangible capital also includes things like the rule of law, property rights, um, a whole wealth of different things, pardon the pun. And so, like, you know, for example... And this is one, I think, one of the reasons why China has made, a, has made an economic mistake by embracing all this mercantilism stuff, um, because physical capital is just increasingly less valuable. There's that new book out about how we're, the economy has been 
in fact dematerializing as we've gotten wealthier wealthier by which you mean which, by which i mean that we actually just use physically less stuff than we used to because we don't need to we're more efficient anyway um uh but you look at someplace like switzerland um almost no natural resources to speak of um and then you look at someplace like afghanistan well switzerland is just infinitely wealthier than not infinitely but it is, it is just orders of magnitude wealthier than afghanistan which is rich in all sorts of weird rare earth minerals and all that kind of stuff um and the reason for it is that switzerland has um intangible capital intellectual capital and it also has um the thing that the, i really wanted to talk about which is social capital um and if you're a regular listener to this podcast You've heard me talk about this before, but a good sort of sh shorthand on this stuff is um, um, this thing that you hear a lot from certain kind of social justice types, critics of capitalism, um, self-help life coach guru types, which is this idea that, you know, um, you're one paycheck away from being homeless or you could be homeless tomorrow. And, you know, a lot of times the people make the point, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's true in the sense that they want it to be when we're talking about people who are, you know, living on minimum wage and don't have a lot of resources, uh, they are pretty close to homelessness. Um, but in reality, you know, look, if, if you're a typical middle-class married person with typical middle-class morality, bourgeois morality, um, modest education, good friends, and you're not a drug addict. Um, barring some sort of tornado-like calamity, and even then probably not, it's very difficult to see how you'd be homeless tomorrow. You know, just go through your head and think of all the people um, and institutions that would give you money for a hotel or rent if some calamity hit you, would let you sleep on their couch or in their spare room indefinitely um you know it's 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 a sign of of a certain kind of prosperity that we don't talk enough about in this life um to say that you couldn't be homeless tomorrow because you're rich in friends and family and one of the reasons i got on this is my um you know and i i, I don't want to get maudlin here uh today's my uh late brother's birthday he's been dead nine years now and maybe it's because, you know, I've been quarantined with my family for a while now. Uh, it just feels a little more poignant than it did, say, last year. I mean, I always think about him on his birthday, but I think about him a lot on his not birthday, too. Um, but it sort of, it got me on the, that's why I started thinking about it. My brother, he had a drug problem. He had his demons. He had a lot of resentments. Um... At the end of the day, he was a great and wonderful guy, and um, it was such a waste to lose him. But, um, you know, he was not, you know, he was not destined for homelessness uh, because my family wouldn't give up on him. He had, you know, the most important form of social capital, which is family. And, you know, social capital takes a lot of different forms. And 
you know, I think America is still generally very rich in social capital. It's just basically the network of relationships, um, customs, morals, all of these kinds of things that let a healthy society function properly. And uh, countries with high levels of social capital can take big shocks to the system because those big shocks are seen as emergencies or exceptions to the rule where people go out of their way to help each other. And that same sort of thing scales all the way down to the family level. If you're listening to me and you lost your job and you even lost your house, if you have high levels of social capital, it's still a calamity, it's still terrible, but um, you're probably not gonna be out on the street tomorrow. And one of the only ways you, you know, can burn through your social capital is if you have very low levels of moral capital. You know, I mean, think about it as the, say, say tomorrow you ended up having to stay at somebody's house, a friend's house, and um, you got the opportunity because you said, look, it's just gonna be for a little while. I'm gonna look for work. Um, I'll help out around the house. You know, I won't be a problem. And then you just turned into a total ingrate and you just exploited the friendship. Uh, you'd burn through the goodwill of your friend very, very quickly. And as a society, which I mentioned in the G-File, this is one of my big problems with the cavalier way a lot of people talk about drug legalization. Um, and I don't necessarily mean about pot, though, you know, I have my issues there. But I'm talking about, you know, things like heroin and other opioids. Um, there is, it, drug addiction is almost designed to make someone burn through their social capital. When you start, you know, addicts steal money from their families. Um, addicts steal jewelry from their mothers. Addicts hawk their wedding rings. Addicts lie about getting better. They do all sorts of things. And I'm not doing this, I'm not saying this as a um, condemnatory thing. I'm just saying that this is what addiction does to a lot of people. And if you don't think that's true, you haven't known a lot of addicts. Um, and it's true of alcohol too. And, but my point is, is that it's the addiction makes you burn through the moral capital um, or, or abandon your moral capital, you know, the teaching of good character and good morals and proper behavior and notions of reciprocity for favors and all that kind of stuff. And you start seeing people as simply resources to get high. And at some point people cut you off because you've broken the contract of social capital. Um, anyway, I, you know, this is, you know, this sort of gets at the thing that I was writing about in the, um, Wednesday G file, um, which I'm not supposed to call the G file, um, which took its cues from this, uh, interesting op-ed in the New York times by, uh, a feminist philosopher, Linda Hirschman. And she made this argument that uh, she thinks Tara Reid, uh, Joe Biden's accuser, is, is telling the truth. She thinks that Joe Biden physically um, sexually assaulted Tara Reid, and she's going to vote for him anyway. And, you know, what I, and, and her argument is, is on its own terms, pretty good. Um, I just don't like the terms. She makes this argument about, you know, grounded in utilitarianism. And, you know, and she walks you through Bentham and Hume and name checks a few, Rawls, name checks a few others to make the basic case that uh, Biden is better than Trump. And look, I mean, 
whatever my position on all of that is, um, she's absolutely right from a progressive feminist perspective, right? I mean, uh, Biden is a has been a reliable uh, puppet of a lot of the campus feminist left for decades. And, um, you know, I say puppet, that sounds pejorative, but I mean, I, from my perspective, it's, it's true, even if it's all sincerely held on his part. But, you know, he's a champion of the Title IX stuff. He's, um, you know, his proudest accomplishment was the Violence Against Women Act. I'm not for violence against women. All I'm saying is that there's a lot in Biden's history of him uh, being at the beck and call of professional feminists and activists. And that's fine. My only point is, is that if you're Linda Hirschman, who's a professional sort of feminist and activist, um, it's just incandescently obvious that Biden is preferable to Donald Trump. And so the question is, for her, is the moral dilemma, how can she support someone that she believes committed sexual assault? And her argument is, well, Trump committed sexual assault, too, and he committed more of it. And the allegations against him are as believable as the allegations against um, Biden. Whether you agree so or not, that's what her position is. And I think it's a defensible one personally. But um, and so for her, her position is the Democrats refuse to find another nominee. And so she's stuck with this. Here it comes. Binary choice. And he's the lesser of two evils. And so she's going to vote for him. And there's a lot of sort of philosophical light show work where she points out to this parable from David Hume about how you cannot expect someone to behave morally if they're in a life or death situation. And his example is um, of a shipwreck. You can't, you can't expect someone you know, trying to prevent from drowning um, amidst the wreckage of some sort of shipwreck to behave in the most moral fashion possible. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, um, but I get the point. It is certainly true that survival is, um, uh, and self-preservation is a perfectly defensible excuse for doing some terrible things if you had no other choice. Um, You know, we can all come up with scenarios. You know, it's, it's sort of like the old, is it from Voltaire? I can't remember. The thing about how it's not immoral to steal bread if your child is starving. Um, I would argue it's still immoral to steal bread. It's just that if my child is starving and that's the only way I'm going to feed my kid, uh, I'm going to steal the bread anyway. And, you know, ideally, I would pay, I would pay the guy back later. Um, but, you know, if faced with the scenario of either my child dies or I steal bread, you know, you're going to be light one loaf of bread. And I get that. It's a perfectly defensible argument um, um, as a thought experiment. We can get to why I have problems with it in a little bit. So she says, you know, the, the Trump campaign, the Trump administration and the Republican Party are the moral equivalent of a shipwreck for the nation, and she's going to do the immoral thing for self-preservation of the country and swim towards Joe Biden, blah, 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 blah. And so... The thing that fascinates me about it is that, again, on its own terms, it's pretty defensible. I disagree with her that when she says utilitarianism is a moral claim, um, uh, well, I shouldn't say, she's, you can make moral claims based in utilitarianism for sure. Um, 
I just don't think it's a particularly admirable or ideal system of morality, which I can get to again in a second. So anyway, um, but the, the first thing that's sort of fascinating about it is that this is almost a perfect woke feminist version of the Flight 93 election argument. Um, I am the first to concede that Christianity, however you want to define it, and uh, feminism are not the same thing. But as organizing principles, they can operate in the same way. For certain feminists, feminism, the principles of feminism, however they define them, are, are there... Are there systems of ultimate concern, as I think Paul Tillich would put it? You know, they are the foundational principles around which they've organized their political philosophy, their morality, and often their careers, and they care about it a great deal. The same can be said about a lot of professional or quasi-professional Christians out there. Um, you know, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., those kinds of people, uh, Eric Metaxas. Um, these are people who, as part of their, uh, it's not just a personal matter of faith with them. This is part of their public persona and part of their business model. And I don't say business model as a, you know, um, as an insult. Conservatism is something that's deep and near into my heart that I believe in passionately as a, as a person, as a citizen, whatever. But it's also part of my business model, right? It's part of what I talk about and write about for a living. I don't see anything wrong in admitting that. And there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, uh, members of the Christian right saying that. And there's nothing wrong inherently with feminists saying that. My only point is, is that these are their organizing principles for how they see the world. And the rationalizations that people went through for that Flight 93 uh, argument was that we need to put a lot of that stuff on hold or on abeyance or not hold you know, Donald Trump accountable to it because um, the alternative is Hillary Clinton. And if, and a Hillary Clinton administration would be the human shipwreck that Hirschman is describing in the Trump administration. And, you know, that's why he had, you know, Sean Hannity beginning his radio show for weeks. We're just 37 days from the possible end of America if Hillary Clinton wins. I always thought that stuff was garbage. I don't think it's true. Um... I think that if we are ever one election away from the end of America, America is already lost. But um, but people sincerely believed it. And so they said, yeah, I know Donald Trump has, is, is not a model Christian and we don't need to rehearse all of the dumber, weirder, he's like King Solomon or King David arguments. Um, uh, we all remember that to one extent or another. And they put it, um, they, they, they put this standard that they normally considered the essential standard to hold politicians to in their, you know, those values voter summits where everyone had to do a cattle show and come forth and talk about how much they believed in Jesus and how much they believed in Christianity and all that kind of stuff. Um, they had to invoke a willing suspension of disbelief about Trump and all that, because while Trump claimed to believe that he was a believing Christian, and you can take him at his word if you want. That's an interesting debate I'm perfectly willing to have. The argument wasn't that people actually believed he believed that stuff, but they took him at his word that he would defend that stuff. He would be their fighter. And there have now been several books by very Trump-sympathetic people 
um, making exactly that argument, is that he's the protector of the realm, as it were, for Christianity in this country, and that Christians are this victimized group, and that he is on their side, and yada, yada, yada. And you can believe it or not believe it. You know, it certainly is a political matter. There's a lot of truth to it. Um, he sees sort of the Christian right as a constituency that he needs to keep happy, and he's done a lot of things to keep them happy. That's all fine. But the same could be said about Joe Biden and feminists. The point is, is that um, the Christian right people, the Falwells and the Metaxas people, uh, maybe not overnight, but over time, uh, basically rationalized their way into saying they no longer considered this the most important standard to hold a politician to. Instead, the, the standard was, he fights for us. He fights, right? That's basically what Hirschman is arguing. She's saying, I wish it were otherwise, which lots of Christians said back then, but uh, I wish it were otherwise. But for feminists, he's the better choice. And we used to consider this to be an utterly disqualifying, uh, uh, you know, another uh, utterly disqualifying thing to be plausibly accused of sexual assault. Um, we are not going to we're not going to hold Biden accountable to that because we don't want Donald Trump. And for the left, I think it's perfectly fair to say Donald Trump is their Hillary Clinton. So what's dismaying about this, and this gets to the utilitarianism thing and the social capital part, is that a just society needs to be organized around loftier and higher and more abstract ideals than the deployment of power. And this goes back to one of my favorite books. I highly recommend it. It's a weird uh, read. It's a bit of a, a screed or a diatribe from a guy named Julian Benda, who wrote the book uh, uh, Traison des Clercs, which again is, a, is about as good a French accent as I can do, translates into The Treason of the Clerks. And in the English language, it was retitled The Treason of the Intellectuals. And so Benda's argument it really is a wonderful book. I mean, I, I, it is, is among the most influential books I've ever read um, for the stuff that I do. Um, had a big impact on how I wrote liberal fascism. Has a big impact on how I view nationalism and all these things. But anyway, Bendo was writing in the 30s, maybe the late 20s in French. I can't remember. I, I might be getting the pub dates backwards. No, he was right, definitely writing in the 20s because he's widely credited with identifying the intellectual trends that led to the rise of Nazism and communism and the Second World War. And the treason of the clerks wasn't like uh, legal treason. It wasn't like betraying their country or anything like that. It was treason of their ideals. Um, the rise of nationalism and biological racism National Socialism, Bolshevism, all of these kinds of things um, caused people, caused intellectuals to lower what their definition of the highest good was to something much more in reach. I'm a believer that your ideals need to always be out of reach. That's why we call them ideals. There's something you strive for. You never get to true north because true north is still always still in front of you. Um, I guess unless you're at the North Pole or something. But it's the direct, ideals are signposts. They point us at the, in the right direction, which reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from this 
and I'm not going to remember his name. There was a Jewish theologian, I think at the University of Boston. God, what was his name? Anyway, um, who was a great moralist and ethicist and all this kind of stuff. And he was also a pretty widely known philanderer um, with an active sex life. And uh, he was asked how he could reconcile his, essentially his hypocrisy um, uh, with, you know, his, his, it, the way he acted with what he preached. And he had this line where he says, look, the sign pointing to Boston doesn't have to go there. And I think that's a really important point um, because we're so obsessed with hypocrisy and inauthenticity these days that people think that if you don't live perfectly in accordance with your ideals, you cannot advocate for those ideals. So if I say gluttony is bad and people say, well, look at all that pizza you're eating, um, they might be right that I'm a hypocrite. They're not right that gluttony is that they're not right to say that I'm wrong to say gluttony is bad. Um, you can, you know, you can fall short of the ideals that you think are best for society without undermining the case for those ideals. You can undermine your own credibility to be sure, but those ideals are valuable regardless. You know, and we live in, but we live in a culture now that because everyone's got to be authentic and be true to their code and all this nonsense, that as long as your ideals are um, things that you are, are, are aligned with your actual behavior, you're like somehow immune to criticism a lot of the time that um, we're expected, you know, we live in a society where if, if you're a glutton and you say gluttony is good and there's nothing wrong with your position because everybody is entitled to their own opinion. Um, and, you know, that's just not how you organize a civilization. So anyway, back to Benda. Benda's point was you had Christians who, you know, if, if there's any, anything you want to say about Christianity in terms of its political ideals that are embedded in it is that they're universal. Right. It's, that, that's the great that's the great transformation of monotheism from Jews to Christians. Is that the Jews with their chosenness and their tribalness and the, you know, in the desert and all of that stuff. Um, they believed they were the chosen people and everyone else around them were heathens. And what Jesus does is he comes along and he universalizes this and says, we are all brothers. Right. And this. This crosses borders, this crosses races, this crosses classes. We're all equal in the eyes of God. And this is one of the great and glorious things about Christianity. But in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, you had all of these ideologues who wanted to claim the popularity of Jesus by bending Jesus to their particularist ideology. So this is where you have, you know, eugenicists saying that Jesus was the first eugenicist because he had some metaphor about fruit from trees or something like that. You had all sorts of socialists saying Jesus was the first socialist. You had um, uh, the Nazis claim that Jesus was an Aryan. You can go down the list. It was this idea that Jesus was on the side of my particular ideological proof or ideological agenda. And um, it was a profoundly reactionary time in the sense it was rejecting the universality of humanity, which was the 
the, the very crux of what the critics of the, the sort of reactionary critics of the Enlightenment claimed. You know, there's this famous line from Joseph de Meist where he says, you know, I've met a, I've met a Russian man, I've met a Polish man, I even know, thanks, I think, to Voltaire, that there's such a thing as a Persian man, but I've never met this creature called man, right? It was that ident- it, it, the was defending, in effect, identity politics. And that's what Bendo was seeing. Orwell picks up on this in his fantastic essay, Notes on Nationalism. He was seeing people take universal ideals, and not just, you know, about Christianity, but about democracy, about human rights, um, and making them the sole ownership of a particular tribe or group. Um, and moreover, that they were the intellectuals who used to um, hew to the idea of truth, even if it was unpopular, um, were now caving to the masses. And uh, they were making basically... Um, you know, populist arguments for morality. If the people are for it, who are we to argue? You know, and he has this great observation about how, um, at least prior to the rise of sort of mass democracy, um, and what he means by mass democracy is more like what we would think of as populism, um, kings used to decide what was in the nation's honor. So if the French took some village that you didn't really care about and was hard to defend, and it freed you up to do other things, you might just shrug it. If you're the king and you had absolute rule, you might just sort of shrug it off. But the second that the national honor became a repository of the people and the popular will, kings basically became servants to whatever the latest passions were. And, um, and that wasn't just true of kings. It was true of democratically elected leaders as well, where this sort of push towards nationalism and um, mass politics was causing not just leaders, but intellectuals to basically abdicate any notion of universalism for um, not only universalism, but ideal tru- the truths and ideals that were not contingent upon popular fads or power politics. All of that stuff was going by the wayside. And that was the treason of the intellectuals. He has a line in there somewhere where he says that um, for the first time in human history, the intellectuals side with the mob that forced Socrates to eat hemlock rather than with Socrates. And so we see a version of this in what Linda Hirschman is writing, where she is basically saying, we are in a system of Cumian survival or deprivation. We can't afford the luxury of our morals. We have to just um, play power politics and it's more important that our side win than it win um, in a way that we can be proud of, which is the exact argument that Michael Anton was making in the Flight 93 thing. He wasn't saying that Trump was perfect. He was saying that if we don't put Trump in the cockpit, the whole country is going to crash and burn and die. So here's my problem with the utilitarianism stuff. Um, it works on this premise that, as Friedrich Hayek would point out, that um, the power to decide what is best for the greatest number of people, and that's basically what utilitarianism boils down to, is what is the most good for the most number of people um, or reduces the harm for the most number of people. Um, 
or however you want to phrase it, um, that once you make that the standard, you're basically saying the standard belongs to whoever is in power and they can implement it as they wish. This was the basically my problem, one of my fundamental problems with pragmatism, which was that it was basically saying, we know what to do. Our experts have figured it all out. We've done the math. And there are just these questions that we shouldn't leave up to debate in democracy. When I say leave up to democracy, I don't just mean voting, because voting has its problems. I mean the full suite of democracy, where you hash things out, where you let political institutions and players compromise and, and um, reach you know, an accommodation with the losers and take some of the winnings off the winner's plates. Uh, that's what democracy does. Is it's, a, it's a procedural means of, of getting buy-in from all of society because you've, you've argued this stuff out. You've negotiated it out. And the, the pragmatists and the utilitarians and the consequentialists and the legal positivists and all these people, they say, no, 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 we know what's right. And um, therefore, the question is no longer what is right, which I think in a democracy is always the question. Um, the question becomes, how do we do it and how do we get the power to do it? And um, Hayek would point out that, you know, a, the only way you can really have a healthy civilization and healthy society is to set up, sort of like I was talking about with the Rawls stuff, with the theory of social justice and the, the veil of ignorance, you need to set up a system where everybody understands what the abstract ideals are, and then they can make their own decisions about how to live up to them um, within, you know, normal reason. Um, but you can't say that there's a group of rulers, whether you call them, you know, monarchs or technocrats or, you know, social justice warriors or MAGA people, whatever, labels don't matter. Um, you can't say they know best and that the time for debate is over. And, um, and so the Hayek argument, that's why Hayek hated the concept of social justice, is that social justice presupposes the idea that you can have, you can impose justice from above on the mass of society, that you can look at society basically as a data set and say, these people have too much money that they don't deserve merely because they're in an income bracket. And these people have less money and they deserve more merely because they're in some income bracket. Justice is something that is interpersonal in the sense that it involves specific people in specific circumstances, which is why all good Hayekians really love judge-made law because it, in case law and uh, common law and that stuff, because it works from the ground up where the specific circumstances are adjudicated fairly um, according to rules of evidence in front of a judge and they're narrowly tailored to the context at hand. They're not blanket sweeping rules for the whole of society based upon potted and ill-defined notions of social justice or, or the national interest or nationalism or socialism or any of these kinds of labels. And um, so anyway, the problem that you get is that when all of the major actors in the system now change to basically arguing that the most important thing is we win and they lose. You lose sight of, you know, what's the point of winning? Is the point of winning just not losing? Is all of politics now just zero sum? Do we bring no standards to why we vote for someone and don't vote for another person? 
Um, and that's where we're heading is this, this, this sort of melting away of the moral capital that guides a healthily, healthily functioning society and keeps, you know, social capital, um, going. If you, if you, if you start internalizing this idea that everything is zero sum, then all you're going to try to do is get over on your friends because all of that other stuff is just sort of romantic nonsense. Or you're just going to say, as long as I reward my friends, I don't care about other people. The, the interplay of social capital and moral capital is really complex and important. And, and it feeds into politics. And if all politicians are going to do is argue that um, their ideals are better than the other side's but they can violate them willy-nilly in order to beat the other side, then they're really not ideals anymore. They're marketing slogans. And the same applies to the left. You know, if you, and again, I don't agree with this idea that, a, that even a credible accusation that goes unproven is necessarily a um, career destroyer um, in any circumstance. I'm not buying into the feminist morality here, but they buy into it. And they're walking away from it in much the same way that a lot of people on the Christian right have been walking away from it. I mean, Eric Metaxas, who used to be such a scold, he did this debate with David French recently where he said that, you know, now he thinks that the, now he says that the reason why he ended up uh, becoming a Trumper is because of the Access Hollywood uh, tape. You know, I mean, just how weird is this timeline when a someone whose entire public identity is basically wrapped up in, you know, bearing Christian witness and, you know, Reinhold Niemöller and all that stuff, now saying that the thing that made him like turn the, change his mind about Trump was the unfairness of the media exploiting a tape of Donald Trump admitting that he sexually assaults people. Now, maybe, you know, fine, maybe he's lying in the tape, you know, uh, maybe he's just bragging. It's a weird bragging if you actually go back and listen to the tape, because on the tape, he's, he's talking about getting shot down by some women and how he, you know, needs to do this physical assault stuff. I mean, it is a weird form of bragging, but even if it's all BS and it never, and he never did any of that kind of stuff, that's not the kind of thing that you know, a hero for the Christian right should be, you know, bragging about. But that's sort of where we are. And, you know, and so it just makes me wonder what the exit strategy here is. It's, it sort of gets to the, all the stuff I talk about, about, you know, Saul Alinsky envy, which I'm not going to repeat all here, but if each side thinks the other side, all it does is that the other side is always winning and it always does whatever it takes to win, and therefore we have to do the same thing. You have a tragedy of the commons, right? You just have this situation where, I mean, this is the logic of, you know, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And it, it deeply, deeply worries me. Um, what else? Oh, since we're talking about tragedy of the commons, uh, I, I hope people listen to the podcast I did with Ron Bailey. Ron is one of my oldest friends. I love the guy. He's a quirky dude. Brilliant. Um, and he had this really interesting formulation. I tried to ask him what I thought was going to be this layup question um, about, you know, these claims that the pandemic proves 
we need government and that the limited government people were always wrong. And as I talked about with Charlie Cook last week, it's just nonsense. There is nothing in whether you want to call it libertarian or conservative or classically liberal or limited government or minarchist or whatever, there's nothing in any of these sort of notions of government that doesn't give the government the right and the authority and even the responsibility to do things that otherwise shouldn't do to fight a pandemic. And this is like so established in American history, going back to colonial times, going back to, you know, George Washington, you know, mandating that all of his troops in the Revolutionary War be inoculated, um, going back to um, all sorts of efforts to fight, you know, yellow fever and smallpox in the early years of the Republic. This is just something that is recognized as one of these exceptions, like a war where the government is allowed to do, you know, draconian, abnormal things uh, because there is a threat to all of the country. And, um, and I thought Ron was going to tee off on all that. Instead, he had a really interesting response. He said, what we're looking at is, a, is essentially a tragedy of the medical commons. And what he means by that, if, if you probably know, you know, a tragedy of the commons is this problem you get in when there's not clear ownership of land. All the farmers get to graze their cattle or their sheep on a plot of land. Since none of them own the land, they have no, in, no self-interest in um, limiting the amount of grass that their, their flocks eat. And the same, particularly when they think if, if, if they pull back, some other farmer is going to eat the rest of it. And so they over-harvest the, the, the crop or the grass or whatever, and it ruins it for everybody. The same thing happens with fisheries. The same thing happens with all sorts of things. This is why Ron says, um, you know, anything that can't be privatized needs to be regulated um, because you need regulations of commons. And um, which is not to say that his regulations would look anything like Elizabeth Warren's regulations, but you get the point. And the trick is to give is to use property rights and market functions whenever possible because when you have property rights, you immediately start taking care of your resources rather than burning them down. And he says the problem is with the medical comment, with the, with the pandemic, is that we in effect have a medical commons that we don't know how to regulate. And in part because we don't have testing. And so people aren't um, taking responsibility essentially for their own microbes or the, potentially their own microbes. It was a really interesting way of thinking about it. I can't quite do it justice, but you should take a listen to it. Um, and, um, oh, uh, what else? Oh, I got, uh, there's a weird math mistake on that podcast. I said that 0.8 of a million was 80,000. It's 8,000. I regret the error <coughs> in my defense. I was trying to do math very quickly, and I'm bad at math even when I do it slowly. Um, um, oh, and one other point about... Um, uh, this voting stuff, which I think I talked about last week. So, you know, and I heard, I heard from a bunch of people where, so the argument is, you know, that, um, again, it's a binary choice. Um, if the Democrats get in, I've even written that we could have a new, new deal, that this could put us on the path to socialism. And therefore, isn't the, um, aren't I morally obliged to vote for Donald Trump? You know, or from left-wing or liberal readers, uh, look at the incompetence and the 
and the corruption that we've seen with Donald Trump in all sorts of ways. I know you don't like Joe Biden, but don't you have to suck it up and vote for Joe Biden? Now, putting aside my very fortunate cop-out that I live in, or not putting it aside, taking into account, I live in Washington, D.C. I, um, my vote doesn't matter. Um, I don't really care that much about my vote. And as I said last week, even if I vote for Trump or for Biden, that wouldn't, which I'm not going to do, um, that would not change how I write and speak about either of them in any meaningful way um, because I think that I have a different obligation sort of of the treason of the clerks variety of still telling the truth as I see it and not acting like some party hack or as some of my friends on the right think their job is to represent the views of listeners or viewers or readers rather than to express their own own opinions. That's, that's not how I define the job. Put all that stuff by one side. Um, I don't believe it. I don't believe the formulation or any of that kind of stuff. But the people who were asking me this do. And it just occurred to me the other day um, that I hear this a lot from people who live in New York, in California, and, you know, Illinois. Um, and I have to wonder, you know, if you actually believe this stuff, that America is X number of days from being over if this or that guy wins an election for one office of one branch of our government at the federal level, um, that it really spells the end of America. Um, if you live someplace where your vote doesn't matter, why aren't you moving? You know, I mean, if, if you actually believe this stuff, um, you know, it's a small price to pay for a true patriot to save the country to move someplace where your vote matters. Um, and, of course, the response to that is, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to move just so I can register as a Republican in a state where Republican votes are needed. Um, and they're looking, if you want to do that, go ahead. But I think most people will say, look, there are other things going on in my life, other reasons why I live where I live. Politics is not the only thing in my life, and I don't want to uproot my family and my job just to go be able to vote in one election. And I think that's a perfectly sane answer. But it does raise the question. It doesn't beg the question. It raises the question why I should, like, reorient my entire job description and, and conscience based upon their analysis of what's at stake in this election if they actually believe it, they should, like, actually vote with their feet and do something. I don't believe it. They just want to beat up on me um, claiming that they believe it without actually, you know, living up to it. And um, anyway, it's just, it's, it's a peeve I've got. And, you know, and I got some complaints from people that I sound like I'm complaining too much. I'm not complaining. I'm rebutting. Um, I'm fine. Um, other than that, everything else is proceeding apace. Dogs are good. I wrote about how the dingo chased a bunny yesterday, and it was really a high point of her time down here. Um... And uh, I guess that's about all I got for now. I don't know who's going to be on the podcast next week. Um, if you can leave reviews at iTunes and all that kind of stuff, it would be great. Um, I really appreciate the positive feedback. Um, and, you know, we are beyond grateful for all the people who have become paid members of the dispatch. It is, um, is a source of, of bottomless gratitude and something that, Steve and David and Sarah and the rest of us, we talk about a lot amongst ourselves about 
um, how much it means to us, and we're, we're, we're truly and sincerely grateful for it. And, um, oh, and last thing is Happy Mother's Day. Uh, you know, as I concluded the G-File, you know, the real, the most important capital to hoard, the most important capital to get you through things like a pandemic or just a crisis in your own personal life um, isn't money, you know, and it isn't toilet paper. It is the people who care about you and the people you care about. Um, those are the people, that is the, 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 the true source of real wealth in life. And, um, you know, I know that our, our overlords at, at Hallmark created Mother's Day to move cards and all of that. That's all fine. But say something nice to your mother. You owe her a lot. Um, I know I do. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Sure.